You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1379, with guest Tony Petrosian. Recorded Friday, November 4th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Tony Petrosian from Microsoft is going to be here in a minute. We're going to be talking about SQL choices. But first, my friend, um, I have this thing for Better Know Framework, but I'm a little, I don't know, I'm a little hesitant to tell you because I want to give it to you for Christmas. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think I'll do both. So okay. roll the music and you'll get your... You'll at least know what your Christmas present is. Ah, uh, that's cool. All right, buddy, let's do this. Yes. I presume it's not a part of the framework. Yeah, it is. I'm actually going to give you system.io for Christmas. Uh, I love it. My favorite <laughs> classes. Nope. This is uh, at 1379.pwop.me because it's show 1379. This is on Amazon.com. It's a cold smoking gun oh cool yeah the smoking gun so this is you've seen these on cooking shows or whatever maybe you have one but if you're like me i don't like cleaning up my smoker all the time and um it's kind of a pain but if you want to just inject some smoke flavor into food which because you know hey it's thanksgiving because this is coming out on november 24th right and literally Thanksgiving. literally thanksgiving and who doesn't like a smoked turkey (laughs) <laughs> you know where I've seen these used? Smoked cocktails. Yeah. Right? You can line the inside of the glass with a little smoke or, you know, bubble the smoke through the drink. Like that, that's These are cool because they're cold, right? It's not a hot exactly. smoke. It's a cold smoke. Yeah, you basically just put your food in some airtight container and the smoking gun has a little tube that goes into it and you light some wood chips and just inject smoke and then keep it airtight for a while. Even 15, 20 minutes just to get the smoke flavor in there. My friend Richard Morris from Australia likes to smoke tomatoes. Oh, interesting, yeah. How cool is that? Yeah, I do those on my big smoker, which I can run at a cold temperature, because we have some neighbors, and I hate to say they're Italian, but they're Italian. Yeah. And they grow a huge ton of Roma tomatoes. Oh, that's a shame. And we'll smoke them with apple wood and then make like jars and jars of sauce. So good. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So it's cool, buddy. I'm getting one of these for myself. I'm going to get one uh, for you for Christmas, unless I decide to get you a Scotch Advent calendar. In which case, because <laughs> I can't get you a Scotch Advent calendar no, anymore. No, no, <laughs> no, not going to do that. Oh well. Oh well. We'll figure something That's out. That's right. 
That's a good one, bud. Yep. Love it. Who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1359, and that's the one we did in October uh, with uh, Lindsay Allen. That was at Ignite. We were talking about hybrid transactional and analytical processing on SQL 2016. H-Tap. Boy, you. I thought that was an amazing, amazing I, show, and she's brilliant. Unbel- yeah, there's one of those moments you sort of look over and go, Wow. You're really, really smart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but not that we don't meet smart people all the time, but holy man. Mm. So, and that this I think is a super relevant comment for where we're going to go today. This is from Siddhar Sathya. And I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, sir. Uh, hi guys, long time listener, first time contributor to the show. Well done because you're going to get a mug out of it. A uh, little bit off the subject, but it was discussed more than once on .NET Rocks. And I wanted to throw in my two cents. Can and should we use a relational database to store IoT data? Uh, we talked about that a couple of times. We on have the show. talked about it a few times, right? And of course, the question is, what do you mean when you say IoT, and what do you mean when you say data? Right. How much right? data? <laughs> it's all. It's a. It's such an. It, it depends kind of thing. Well, I mean, but, starting with the cost, it's going to probably be more expensive for you to do that than you know storing it in a document somewhere. Yeah, well, it's the storage side versus the analytics side. But Sithar goes on to say, choosing document DB or relational database is not going to be the topic of discussion uh, once we get the architecture right. I used to work with PLC several years ago, so actually three decades ago. So right away I go, okay, he's talking low-level devices. We had a similar problem. We had a very slow communication speed. <clears throat> 50 baud. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> like five characters a second. Okay. <laughs> wow. And the challenge was we had to pull 60-plus PLCs within a few seconds using a party line. We could not communicate with more than one device at a time. Each PLC could have as much as 96 IO events. In the event each PLC would report the status of all 96 IO lines, it would have taken us minutes to pull all 60 PLCs. Did he say party line? Yes. Are you talking Remember about those? when the, you had these old phones and you would sometimes pick up your phone and other people would be talking on it? Yeah, and they're going to use that for telecommunications. And you say, hey, you just knocked me off the network. What are you doing? <laughs> Talk to Gladys another time. Nice. And the solution we used developed by Advanced Logic Solutions was to report by exception, reporting only changes and for analog values the change was over a certain limit. And going back to the 50-baud transmission polling, each device needed less than 20 bytes round trip rather than six or 800 per PLC when nothing was changed. And, of course, once an hour or so to get the full status of all the IOs. Yeah. And, unfortunately, ALS does not support that legacy protocol anymore. Mm. It works with essential server for polling individual devices. Today, we use the intranet or internet and MQTT, which, yeah, that's, that's uh, how we do it. We got a lot more bandwidth and a lot bigger packets. Yeah. Where does this fit in with IoT devices? IoT devices need not report values every time data is scanned. It's easy to program for each IO the tolerance and IoT devices to only report changes that are above the tolerance limits. By reporting only changes above tolerance limits, we are limiting the data being transmitted to the gateway from IoT devices and gateway to data storage server. Limiting the transmitted data, the decision of what to store or discard is easy, and the choice of database server becomes much simpler. Yes, less data makes your life simpler. That's mm. true. But, you know, the interesting part, when you, and that's why I said, what, what do you mean when you say IoT and what do you mean by data? It's like, you know, look at these latte pandas. We have full bore PCs love that, that fit in your palm. Mm. So it's no longer a real limited device. They all have Wi-Fi and or Ethernet 
or at least USB. We have fast communications and we've got lots of compute so that you can store more stuff, think about more stuff, be more efficient over the wire. Mm. And ultimately, you know, you've got the flexibility to store your data any way we want. But I'm sure, absolutely certain, Tony will probably want to jump in on this. Yep. Uh, Sridhar, thank you so much for your comment. Uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. Good one for your first comment. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We toss him in the data lake. <laughs> and now let's, oh my God, how, many, how long are we going to be doing these stupid Twitter jokes? Please help me. Every show. All right. <laughs> Uh, it brings us to our guest today. Tony Petrosian has spent the last nine years contributing to the building of SQL technologies at Microsoft. Tony is currently a group program manager in the database systems engineering organization, and he's responsible for delivering the next version of SQL Server. Prior to coming to Microsoft in 07, Tony was the program director for the IBM Power Systems Performance. During his seven years at IBM, Tony worked on operating systems, storage systems, relational databases, processors, and enterprise servers. Early in his career, Tony worked at Informix on distributed database technologies. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. You're welcome. Uh, great to be here. Yeah. What did you think of that uh, smoking gun? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hungry and thirsty, and I want the drink and uh, the tomatoes. <laughs> So. We are recording on a Friday, so of course we all have cocktails yeah. in our minds. Yes, it sounds pretty good. Uh, are you, am I going to get one <laughs> just for being on the show? Uh, you know, for a hundred bucks, you can have one. Yeah, actually. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Okay. And it's Amazon. You can, you have, can it have it today. That's right. You can have a shit. Excellent. What'd you think about the comment, uh, Tony? Um, about uh, uh, the IoT yeah, conversation, storing, storing data yeah. in IoT. You know, we we have a lot of customers uh, and there are different scenarios uh, and different preferences, and uh, we have lots of customers who store IoT data in SQL Server because of our in-memory processing and analytic capabilities, or maybe they want to run R on top of the data and mm. dashboards. But we also have a lot of customers that use our Hadoop systems or Data Lake. It really depends on uh, your ingestion rates uh, and what are you going to do with the data afterwards. So a lot of people who do the, say, connected cars, where there's millions and millions of devices, they tend to collect and dump it in. Uh, Hadoop or Lake systems. And then at some point, some of that data ends up in SQL. So whichever way you go, somehow SQL plays a role in it. And then we have some systems where they're really, really real time and people want to be able to do uh, query processing on top of it where the devices just send the data directly to SQL. And with our in-memory technologies, you can ingest massive amounts of data and with our column store, you can do query processing real time. So yeah. it works out pretty well. And then that comment came from a show we did with Lindsay Allen back at Ignite talking specifically about HTAP, which sounds like exactly what you'd want in a very high rate of data flow transactional system to be able to be doing pretty much analysis in real time. Yeah, and that's the key. I mean, if, if you want to be able to do the analysis real time, do the visualization real time, being able to ingest it and query it and display it uh, all real time. Databases do uh, do become handy in those situations. Yeah. But, and coming out of Connect, you guys announced a lot of stuff. I think people were surprised. We did. 
Um, so we, we just announced um, SQL Server vNext, uh, CTP1, so our first uh, technical preview. Uh, and this is a um, SQL Server that will run on Windows and Linux. So this will be our first uh, public preview of SQL Server on Linux. So there's a lot of excitement around that. We had a lot of customers in, in private preview, uh, but, you know, private previews are always limited. So there's a lot of pent-up demand for this thing to go public. So it's going to be very exciting in the next uh, few weeks for us. And, and is it actually a common code base, this next version of SQL Server that will run on Windows and the one that will run on Linux? Yeah, it's the same SQL. There's a lot of engineering behind that, but it's, uh, it's you know, your SQL workloads uh, will run. We, we actually demoed um, uh, the ability to take a database on a Windows machine, back it up, copy the files to Linux, and start the database with the backups, and boom, without any conversion. Just detach the database on Windows, attach it on the Linux side, and it comes up, and your workload goes on. That's magic. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Awesome. So. <laughs> Is it literally, so feature parity out of the gate. Yes. Okay, you guys are gods. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm in awe. Well, you know, there, Is that such a, I mean, are, SQL Server is a super mature product. You've been building it for a long time. Yeah, it's been a few decades. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and I think the fact that the same stuff runs and you get the same level of maturity that that's really going to be very useful for our customers who have preferences. Again, um, you know, I, I my team, you know, we call ourselves the SQL Choice Team because you know our mission is to go uh, and provide choice to customers. So you want to run it on Windows, you want to run it on Linux, you want to run it in Docker, you want to run it on a Mac. Bring mm. it on. Mm. Knock yourself out. Yeah. Of course, I'm old enough in the SQL world to remember when you guys were getting a version of Sybase that was running on Unix to run on Windows. Yeah. I, you know, not much of that code base is left. Most of it has been rewritten yeah, over still. the decades. But yeah, that's the that's the heritage. I mean, that's where it came from. Mm. Yeah. But I think it was SQL 7 was the big one where you guys really wrote your own version. Yeah. Jim Gray and all those guys back in that day. Yes. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify Prefix, an insanely cool and transparent and free profiler for developers. It runs in the background and catches bugs, including exceptions that get caught and thrown away before anyone knows you wrote them. Get detailed traces of every request. There's no messy configuration or code requirements, and best of all, it's fast and transparent. Hey, did I mention it's free? And not free like a puppy. Free like beer. Download it now at prefix.netrocks.com. So what is the parity with um, SQL Azure? And uh, it's not a different team, is it? Is SQL Azure running the exact same code that um, that SQL Server on-prem runs? Yes. In fact, it's the same exact uh, engine. It's the SQL engine, and it is the same source base. And wow. we only have a single source base for all SQL products. And we're in this mode where we do cloud-first development. So most of the new features get coded, tested by the developers. They get deployed into Azure SQL database. And then that code ultimately gets built and it goes into the next version of SQL. So as we're built and released SQL Server vNext CTP1, some of the code in that CTP has already been in SQL DB for some time. I see. And that's how hmm. we develop database features. 
Now, of course, there are system level things and HA and all of the other cloud stuff, which is unique. There's a cloud stuff and then there's the on-prem stuff. But the core relational engine and the features in the database is just only one code base and one engine. Wow. Now, occasionally we have to doctor up the version numbers so that people don't figure out what's going on in advance. But other than that, it's all the same, same engines. Well, and that means you guys are developing very efficiently, right? That the work's all in the same place. You just at some point have to declare a version you're going to ship out to the on-prem guys. Yeah, and we also get a lot of uh, agility in how we respond to customers. So, for example, when we developed uh, role-level security for mm-hmm. SQL Server 2016, mm-hmm. uh, we were collaborating with a bunch of customers who really wanted that feature. Now, these customers really wanted the feature in SQL Server you know, for their on-prem servers. But we developed it. It took us about four months, and we put it in SQL DB, and these customers went ahead and tried it, and they wrote some code against it. They tested it. They gave us feedback. They told us what works and what doesn't work. We had to re-implement a bunch of things. And we went through this cycle a couple of times, and within six months, we were done. And so we went from this super private preview in SQL DB where a handful of customers had access to the role-level security uh, feature to public preview where anybody can try it. And then we GA'd it and said, okay, role level security is now GA'd in Azure SQL database. And then when the same uh, code was used to build the next version of SQL, of course, that role level security showed up in the box product. And the customers that really wanted it, they were ready to go because they had already tested the code against it feature that given us the feedback. And so they started using it. Uh, when SQL Server 2016 came out. And that was back in June that 2016 came out. So, I mean, do we have a time horizon here, or can you even comment on that? Um, well, we've, we've said publicly that sometime in 2017, uh, we will have a Linux uh, a version of uh, SQL. And, and so beyond that, we're not commenting on dates yet. All right. Other right. than CTP1 is out, right? Yep. So... Well, and, in, and in, historically, you've put out a major version of SQL every two years, but that's just history. Who knows what the cloud world's going to do to you? Yeah, you know, if I was to tell you that I'm going to predict what features we're going to need six years from now, and we're going to build it now for you to have them six years from now, you would just laugh at me, because who knows what <laughs> you're going to need six years from now. So yeah. the, the old four or five year cadence just does not work. Um, so we right. need to we need to be a lot more agile. Now that doesn't mean that just because we're releasing more often, we go disrupt our customers. Yeah. Our support models are all still intact. You get your you know five plus five. So if you're using any version of SQL Server, uh, you know, and you want to use it for a long time, that's that's fine, right? Yeah. Uh, but customers who want the new features can can go on. Uh, it, it has a lot of burden on us because now we have to. Um, maintain a lot more versions and branches, but it's worth it, right? Make customers happy. Always. No, yeah, no question. But the, I mean, the query language itself, what was the last standard? Was it like 2011? Yeah, I knew there's been a lot of divergence from the SQL standard and a lot of the new features and so on, right? But uh, in various databases have their own flavors of these things. And as new features come, sometimes database companies come up with things that outpace any standard right so sure yeah um i i I do i do feel like the sql standards body has a very tough job yeah 
it's not an easy thing. Of course, you know, we're all members, but, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do across all of the various industries and the interests in town with, you know, the SQL language is being used in so many different ways other than just relational databases, right? Yeah. Most of the sure, sure. systems offer you some SQL, which is good. Um, and then, you know, we just, you know, we have a lot of features in SQL and uh, some of the features were available in uh, SQL Enterprise Edition and some of the features are available in SQL Standard Edition. So one of the things that we just announced here at Connect is that we're going to make all the programmable features of SQL available for all versions of SQL. Yay! And, uh, Yay. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're hoping that that will uh, make life a lot easier for developers who write code because when you're writing code, you can just use the features that you need uh, and not think about, well, where is this code going to run and which version or which edition of SQL is it going to be? So if you want to use page compression when you define your tables, go ahead and do it because right. you know, you'll be in Express and Standard and Enterprise and Developer Edition and so on. That's great. So, yeah. Um, it makes life much simpler. And the, I mean, there are obviously enterprises that should own the Enterprise Edition of SQL Server. Absolutely. I think there's many more folks that just cannot just by that cost. Yeah, and, you know, um, Enterprise is still uh, the version of SQL Server that you need if you want to run on that 24 terabyte HP machine. Uh, yeah. With, I don't know how many <laughs> hundreds of cores. Uh, if you need the scale performance and, uh, and some of the uh, operational aspects and security aspects and, and, and availability, you definitely need um, SQL Server Enterprise Edition. But if you're writing code and, you know, you don't need anything other than a small database, then you can use whatever feature and it'll work. Yeah. As your workload grows and you decide that maybe you're going to go from a free Express Edition and to a standard and enterprise, you don't have to change your code. And if you decide to step down, you also don't have to change your code. Yeah, it's all, it all comes down to features and number of cores and amount of memory available. But I guess that the real question is, what features do you lose? What what are the features that are still enterprise only? Um, mostly performance, scale, availability, uh, and and some of the uh, encryption features like encryption at rest, things which are operational right. and not not coded against. Right. right. And, and I always get concerned about security features being you know like enterprise only. Until they require operators to maintain them. Yeah. Then it kind of makes sense. Yeah. So our security features, which are programmable, are available everywhere. So if you want row-level security right. and data masking and so on, those are all programmable features and they're available everywhere. That's cool. Yeah, very cool. And again, those same features mapped into a Linux world. I mean, just the differences in the way that storage is used and, and allocated and connected with, how do you hide that? How does it just work? Um. Well, we, we, we have this thing which we call the, the platform abstraction layer, which abstracts right. out operating system-specific stuff from SQL. So the higher layers of mm -hmm. the code just function um, the same way, and there's no if-deathing or no if-unix, if-linux, if-windows, and it's just all the same code. And then we push down the burden on, on the PAL, which is the, again, platform abstraction layer. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and that's where the magic happens and that's where the mapping happens. That's where, you know, the Windows versus Linux and the various host extensions uh, specific to those platforms. And so we think that this model gives us all of the, 
the great performance that we need and and but it right it doesn't complicate life for uh, for developers and you know other databases have similar abstraction layers and you know they work on multiple platforms but we really sure. did want to make sure that like you can go this back and forth between windows and linux with ease which is awesome does the do the other peripheral products like uh, analysis services, reporting services, integration services, are they also cross-platform? Not yet. So not at okay. this point. Uh, we yeah. started with the relational engine, and in all of our conversations, we've, we've tried to be clear about it, and then first comes the RDBMS, and then we'll work on the other stuff, right? Uh, so, But RDBMS is the first let's tip of the spear. Well, and a heck of an accomplishment. Again, kudos. Yeah. Like that's not a small amount of stuff you got moved for a first go. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna put out a lot of information uh, about the architecture and such because I, I, we really do want our customers to understand what it is that we're doing so they can feel comfortable mm-hmm. about it. Um, you know, to be honest, there's lots of skeptics in the in the technology world, right? Everybody, everybody has a has an opinion. So we just want to come clear and just put the stuff out there, and people will know. Hey, you guys have a, a new on-premises or on-prem uh, appliance or something that, that's coming out. And I know in 2014 there was an appliance, but there's something new, newer, isn't there? We have a fast-track program for our data warehousing workload. And with the fast-track program, it's actually an awesome program because we work with our storage and, and uh, system uh, partners to build uh, these pre-configured systems um, and you can go search for SQL Fast Track for data warehousing workloads. They come in different sizes, different combination of capabilities, and different vendors. So instead of saying, hey, here's one appliance that you get, like if you really like buying systems from Dell, then you can go buy the Fast Track configuration from Dell or HP or, or any one of our partners. You know, uh, again, customers have to have choice. Yeah. And uh, so. And then, you know, different sizes. But the nice thing about the fast track is there's a little data sheet that comes with each one of them. And there's a set of tests that have to run. And there's a set of performance numbers that have to be um, reported with each of the fast track. So customers can go pick a vendor and pick the different sizes and actually look to see what the system capabilities are with scan rates and so on and so forth. And you pick one and you buy it and it comes configured like an appliance. Nice. Well, and, and I'm, I have the most experience with Dell hardware. So I'm looking at this list and going, yeah, I know the R730. That is a fine mm. piece of gear. So yeah, <laughs> sure. That's a pretty big list. Makes sense huh? to me. There's a lot of vendors. Yeah. No, these, um, it's also when you, when you talk about on-prem products, people want to put in their data centers. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, different vendors in different geographies, different preferences. So that's what we went for. Well, and, and you, every time you add a different kind of hardware, or a different kind of vendor relationship, that costs me as the IT guy money. So I'm, I'm appreciative that I can use the vendor I know that I have the relationship with. And yeah, this is a big assortment here, including a bunch of the, the data storage guys, the NetApps, EMCs, and pure storage of the world. Yeah. We, you know, I mean, the, when, when we define the specs and we define a test and we define a configuration and anyone who's willing mm-hmm. to go through the process of certifying and actually testing and making sure that everything works so the customers have great experience, um, then by all means, right? Because I think before yeah. it was like, 
really difficult to say, okay, this is, this is it. You know, I know you don't have a relationship with this particular vendor, but now you need to have one because if you have any. Yeah, these are the guys. So that doesn't work really well. But what we have with Fast Track, it's been very popular. Yeah, well, unless you want 24 terabytes of RAM, and then there's only one person so far crazy enough <laughs> to build one, I think. <laughs> 384 dim slots. Yeah, but if you look at the sizes of those fast-track machines, you can get some monster-sized databases for data warehousing on a single instance of SQL Server. Yeah, these are beefy machines. A lot simpler uh, life than try to build some crazy, you know, clustered sort of a thing, right? For some of these workloads, yeah. which, you know, fit perfectly nice, you get the best performance. That yeah, that the Dell with the R seven thirty fifty five terabytes that'll keep you out of trouble. Yeah, one of the Lenovo's here has one hundred and fifty terabytes. Yeah, so I should go yeah, through that that's list. Plenty. I was just looking at it a few days ago. I haven't I haven't been on that site recently, but um, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good. I'll list. include a link so folks can look at All this. All right. Well, uh, Richard, you know what time it is now. Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to change my mind and give you a different gift for Christmas. Oh? One of them Dells. Not! <laughs> no. Not! <laughs> you, yeah. You don't want to see the price tag on one of yeah, those machines, man. I know. I don't need not. that. <laughs> it's, you know what? It's just really difficult <laughs> to gift wrap the thing. <laughs> Add, that's why. Add to cart. $30,000. Yes. Well, <laughs> you want to wrap each stick of RAM yeah. separately. How much does it come out to, actually, money-wise? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't even run the number, right? To get to 24 terabytes? was expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try one of these. Hey, it's actually time to give away an Infragistics Ultimate to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Ignite UI. Ignite UI from Infragistics is the complete HTML and JavaScript toolkit to build modern browser experiences on any device, desktop, tablet, or phone. Designed for the enterprise, you'll create high-performance, touch-first, responsive apps with AngularJS directives, bootstrap support, and Microsoft MVC server-side widgets. More at igniteui.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Steven Nicholson. Congratulations, Steven. I'll clap for you, sir. Steven won that just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is or want to learn more, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, we like to ask our guests, Tony, if you had $5,000 right now to spend on technology, what would you buy? You know, probably a lot of phones. But then again, <laughs> that new uh, Surface Studio thing looks pretty nice. Oh, yeah. Very pretty. I, I wouldn't mind having one of those uh, on my desk. Uh, so maybe that's something to ponder. Uh, but, you know, throw in a couple of iPhones so you don't think that I'm a Microsoft uh, <laughs> zealot. <laughs> <laughs> I did do them. I just quickly did the math looking up some DDR4 64 gig RAM, uh, kit of four of them for 256 gigs of RAM, 3300 bucks. Wow. And you're going to need 96 of those. So that's $320,000 worth of RAM. Oh my God. To get to 24 terabyte. You know, when I worked at IBM, uh, we built this first ever one terabyte system. 
and this was a long time ago. And uh, memory was $9 million for that one terabyte. Wow. Oh, my God. They should have just waited a few years. <laughs> and and uh, we did. We waited another year, and we, we built the two-terabyte machine, and that was $18 million. Ah. So, just a memory. <laughs> so things have been Just because of memory. Uh, yes, no kidding. Yes. Well, and it, it seems very reasonable to do a, a top-tier compute machine like that. It's going to come in at five or $600,000, depending on the number of cores and the amount of RAM and stuff. Like, that's, it, that's up there. Yeah. But, you know, 24 terabytes of RAM, what yeah. are you doing? That's a lot of RAM. Well, I mean, you, you'll run your entire database in there. You can actually insert yeah. hundreds of millions of rows coming from your IoT devices in memory, mm. yep. process them, build uh, column store indices so you can query them and those are all run in memory, right? So basically you 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 utilize the full power of the in-memory technologies in, in SQL. Sure. You know, I, I worked on a system, and again, many years ago, where we were trying to do real-time analytics of the manufacturing of hard drives. I'll leave the company out, uh, but there's only so many you could think of. And the problem was that by the time you were testing the drive to make sure it was working correctly, you'd already made several hundred more with the wow. same flaw. So they were trying to validate the production technique far, mm -hmm. further up the line, and time mattered. And suddenly, hundreds of thousands of dollars was just not that much money compared to what happens when a line goes yeah. wrong. Yeah. And like, the ROI on that stuff gets pretty extreme. Right. So for that, you know, you throw in some predictive analytics. So you're not looking yeah. at history. You're trying to predict what's going to happen. You want, uh, you know, we, we now have R inside SQL, so you can use predictive models, and a lot of customers do it in manufacturing uh, jet engines and such, where you can get in front of those problems before they occur if you have the right models. And so you build the models, and then you operationalize it into your SQL database because it's easy to operationalize things and operationalize things in databases, and and so on. And you bring R in there, there's no data movement, right? You have the data in the database, right. analytics in the database, the predictions there, uh, and that works pretty well. Well, and this, and this is getting sort of the reality of the problem now, and I appreciate that you guys are solving this by bringing all this stuff together, is if I'm gathering terabytes of data, I simply can't move it around. It doesn't matter how big the pipe is, it takes yep. too long. Yeah, and, and, and especially for real-time Processing, right? I mean, real-time processing. Yeah. You gotta, you have to do the processing where the data is coming in. So you do your stream processing, or you do your in-memory processing to, to get to that real-time aspect of it. But and I, I, I hate to always fall back into the big data center solutions here because it's it's fun, the giant hardware and the huge compute problems. But you know, going all the way down to SQL Express, like this was the thing you bundled with your app just so you had a reliable data store on the machine that you were working from. You know, with SQL Server Express Edition, you can actually have in-memory and column store. Not not very big right. one, but those functionalities are now in Express. So go play with it. So they, they are there. You can build this way right in your app. And when you build your app that way, is there any licensing required? Like, how do you ship SQL Express as part of your app? SQL Express is free. Download it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's always been. So part of your install process is to go download SQL 2016 Express local and install it. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Like You, you can also, if I mean, if you build a solution on Linux, you can just uh, do app get MS SQL server and off you go. By the way, I want to uh, mention a couple of other uh, interesting things. So one of the things we're doing for the developers 
just to make life easier in these spaces, we're open sourcing a bunch of our uh, client libraries and SDKs. So, for example, we just open sourced our uh, Java JDBC driver for SQL. And one of the reasons for that is because people use this stuff to build applications. And if you want to have an easy uh, experience where you define your dependencies for your app and the latest version of Microsoft JDBC just comes from Maven straight because you have a dependency described, then it just works. Mm -hmm. And so open sourcing this stuff then allows us to just put it out there so then people can pick it up build it as part of their applications or include it into their dependencies and not have to go through the Microsoft machinery to get this thing onto some computer. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and we get a lot better engagement with our developer friends when the stuff is out in GitHub. Um, they help us with uh, prioritizing work, which bugs to fix first, which features to do. Uh, and we have a lot of customers who say, hey, you know, I use your stuff and I have an app, and I have this test. Can you throw my test into your stuff? So every time you come up with a new version, you'll run my test, so I know the stuff will work for me. And we happily take contributions from customers. Say, okay, fine, your tests are now part of our suite. And so every time we make nice. a change, things get sent. And this is what really the open source thing is really going after enabling these scenarios so we can just uh, provide a better experience for developers. So anyway, there's no downside to you guys picking up those tests. Like no. there's only upside to that. No. And usually the reason it comes up is because we give them a, a preview version of the thing and it breaks their app. And, and then, so they give us a snippet of their app and they go, here, this is what you broke. Make sure you don't do it again. And we're like, yes, hmm. sir. Right. So it works pretty well. <laughs> and uh, we have the same thing going on for our PHP drivers. Uh, we have customers, huge customers with huge number of websites, and they use PHP to access SQL Server. And a lot of them, you know, they just pick the stuff up, they test it, and if they find anything that's broken, they give us their tests, and, and next time around, they don't have to worry about it. It just improves the quality of the, of the product as well as the quality of the experience for the customer. Should we talk a little bit about just Postgres? Like that seems to be the place before there was this option that people were going. Like, where? How do you see your, your connection to Postgres or the, the choice within that? So Postgres is a popular database. A lot of people use it. It's, you know, there's not much else to say about that. Right. I think Postgres has a very different uh, use pattern than, than MySQL. Uh, what people are doing with Postgres is very different than with MySQL. A lot of the MySQL state out there is a content management system. Not, not mm. exclusively, yeah. but a lot of it. Right. And um, Postgres covers other scenarios pretty well. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it's, it's out there. It's a, it's a database. It's a database. But it, it strikes me as when, you know, in MySQL and SQL Server, there's just no comparison, right? MySQL is a much more lightweight thing, different purpose. PostgreSQL, that's a more substantial database. I don't know where I'd sit in relationship to SQL Server because SQL Server has got an amazing pedigree and it's done a, a lot of incredible things. Right. But it's just interesting to see those two. and Because if I would think that somebody thinking about using SQL Server on Linux is coming from Postgres. Or maybe it's Oracle. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, what would attract them? Well, uh, I I would have to say that, you know, we have a lot of uh, movements from other databases to SQL sure. on Linux because that was one of the things that people were waiting for because some, right. some customers or 
you know, potential customers didn't want to do double migration. I don't want to move a database and an operating system. My right. OS of uh, right. standard ITOS is Linux. So now all of a sudden SQL Server is an option for those customers, right? That we're on Linux already using some other databases that they may or may not like anymore. And, and so now they have a pass. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I'll come back on the show a few months from now and then after watching the patterns uh, emerge and see how it goes, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it is kind of early days right yeah. now. It's like, you know, CTP1 just popped. So you really yeah. can't, you know, figure out what we don't know. people are going to do. So, But uh, all of our um, research that went into actually doing this did say that there's a substantial uh, pent-up demand for it. So, so here we are. Interesting. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that folks, Linux shops resist Windows is that their instrumentation and management are so different from each other. But with SQL Server's heritage coming from Windows, how do you shift your measurements of the health of your database over to more of a Linux way of doing things? Um, well, uh, I'll give you one of those things, which is about SQL Server, which is very different than um, SQL Server on Windows on Linux. Mm-hmm. We have mapped all of the SQL DMVs in Flash proc type style in Linux. So you can actually go look at the SQL statistics like a Linux DBA would go look at processes and memory and threads and what's running and what's not from Linux. Wow. Wow. You're familiar with Flash proc on Linux? Yeah. Yeah. Now you can traverse down to the SQL DMVs. So that's one thing we, we kind of threw in there because it was fun actually doing that. The other thing we did is we took slash proc and mapped it into SQL. So now you can go do a select on your process table on Linux. So if you're a diehard SQL, T-SQL, DBA, and you don't want to pop out into bash and type ps-es, you can run a select from SQL. Wow. So now those, those things were engineering candy, but we think it's actually going to be popular, very popular. Well, and it's those bits of candy that make people comfortable. It's like, oh, I'm not living in a foreign land. This guy understands me. Yeah. And it all starts from the installation, right? I mean, two commands to install SQL in a Linux Docker on a Mac, one command to install SQL on Red Hat, on Ubuntu, on SUSE. Um, you know, and it's it's a native experience, right? It has nothing to do with SQL. It's what has to do with uh, the way it is uh, on Linux. Sure. And so the install experience for SQL Server on Linux is nothing to do with the install experience on Windows. Right. And Yeah, no, they, they, it's a Linux way of installing. Yes. Nobody will recognize other than it says MS SQL dash server. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll know what that is. Yeah. It's pretty good. Any other announcements from Connect we should talk about? Um, so, you know, our basically, you know, we, we released uh, SQL Server 2016 SP1 with all of these yep. uh, new features that show up in Express and um, and uh, and Standard, which were just previously for enterprise only. So that's, I think, is, a, is going to be a pretty big um, uh, news for customers, a lot of happy customers about that. Yeah, it's going to take time, actually, to go through those features, figure out what you want to use, you know, and understand what they can do. Yeah, and and, and some of it is it's, it's pretty easy, right? And 
to to adopt and use, and and then some of it is like more sophisticated features, like something like compression. You just add with compression to your table, and you're right. done with something like in memory or LTP. You know, you have to go and you know um, figure out how you can actually leverage that to make your apps run faster. Um, so yeah, that's the work, and then all of the work we did for our developers at Connect. Of course, it's Connect for developers, so. A lot of information about the JDBC being open source. You know, we're we're doing um, uh, a lot of work to make sure uh, Node.js developers have a great experience with SQL. Uh, so we actually have mm-hmm. engineers here here now that contribute to Tedious, which is the Node.js driver for SQL. It's an open source project. Mm-hmm. Didn't come from Microsoft, but that's what we're um, we've to uh, advance. So we're contributing to that to make sure that SQL features all are enabled in tedious. Uh, we have a new set of uh, getting started tutorials for people who just want to start with SQL Server. And you can come into the website and you can go search SQL Server getting started tutorial. And you get to, you know, you see a menu, you pick your OS of choice. Let's say you pick Mac and I want to do Node. And then it walks you through a very short tutorial of how you get up and running on a Mac with and and write a little snippet of a node code uh, running right, and, or you can come in and say, "I want to run Linux, I want to run Java, right, on a SQL," and then you walk through the tutorial. So That's trying awesome. to make it easy for people to adopt. Yeah, yeah, that no, makes it makes it very easy, and uh, j- it's just one of those things where I suddenly I'm looking, at going, "I need to spend some time now because there's a bunch to, of things to know and do here." Yeah. By the way. Um, we also have .NET Core as part of the tutorial. Yeah. So you can go pick up .NET Core, run it on Linux or a Mac against SQL. And we also just introduced a, a cross-platform tool as part of Visual Studio Code uh, that allows you to write code SQL against SQL Server. And that's a cross-platform tool. You can write it on any platform and connect to SQL, write code, it's rather beautiful. It's a wow. little extension. You pick up the SQL extension for VS uh, Code, and boom. Very it's cool. Awesome. Yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Like it's, it's almost, yeah, it's, it's almost too much. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, a lot of things happening. So um, it will be an exciting few weeks for us. And so hopefully people will yeah, try it out see and, what and, happens and give next. us feedback. Most of the stuff, you know, we, we, we want people to engage with us on GitHub. We want people to engage with us at, at the forums. If you have questions, post them to Stack Overflow, and we'll answer. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, Tony, thanks very much. It's been great. Um, I know I'm a little quieter on the terms. I'm a little quieter on shows where we talk about IT things and SQL, but, you know, that's why Richard's here. So thank you, guys. It's been awesome. All right. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, good luck with the smoker. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Thanks, Tony. Tony. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. 
online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.